Whether you grew up in the city, country, or suburbs, most of us have deep emotions imprinted in our memories as to the place where we're from. In BT's neighborhood, we'll investigate two questions, who am I and whose am I? These questions, we hope, will point us in a more distinct direction of knowing how to live into the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we love those around us, especially those who challenge or oppose us, if we don't even know who we are or how to express love for God, others, and ourselves? So take a walk with us, learn where to buy your groceries and where to find a good conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Roberts Wesleyan University in conjunction with the Office of Spiritual Life. We want to welcome you to the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody. This is another edition of BT's Neighborhood, a podcast that is recorded on the campus of Roberts Wesleyan University here in Rochester, New York. I am your host, grateful for our producer who's in the house, Amanda Spencer. She is behind it all, controlling the mechanisms and making sure everything comes out great. Thanks, Amanda. And um, we've got a good podcast. We've been on this theme of Redefining Power. I'm so excited for our special guest uh, today. Um, I look at him as a mentor, one of my favorite professors, if not the favorite, um, Dr. Richard Middleton. Dr. Middleton, thank you for being here today. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Why don't you tell our listeners who you are, a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am born in Kingston, Jamaica. I grew up there, did an undergraduate degree in theology. I immigrated to Canada, did a master's degree there, did a stint in upstate New York. That's how I got my foot in the door here. Mm. Went back to Canada, did a PhD, came back for a job, and I've been in Rochester quite a while. I've been at Roberts Wesleyan and Northeastern Seminary 21 years totally, um, teaching here. And um, Pastor G was in the first course I ever taught at Roberts hey, Wesleyan College. You're dating me here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but he was about to graduate next year, I think. Yeah, yeah, that was a a very influential class in my life, kind of reshifted my whole paradigm of how I saw the Christian life Mm -hmm. and even how I looked at the scriptures. So my main area of teaching is biblical studies, mostly Old Testament, but they make me teach New Testament too. But I've also got a background in philosophy, and I try to integrate theology, philosophy, cultural studies, Western history, pastoral questions, music, life with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, man, you're opening the door wide here because <laughs> when you talk, when we talk about power, there's a lot in the Old Testament uh, that can, you know, confuse us and, you know, just really a lot of stuff out that just leaves you wondering about how does God look at power and we as humans, how do we interpret that and live that out? So my first question for you today is when did you know power was a thing? Like what was your experience when you first realized yeah. that? So I grew up, you know, um, physically white in a black society. Mm. That's, that doesn't mean I was culturally or ethnically white. There's a whole definition of what race is as a cultural construct. I did not view myself that way. 
Um, but I, I know that people looked at me differently because I was a minority. I also was a particularly shy kid growing up, very shy. So shy, my teachers thought I was pathologically shy mm. when I was a younger kid. Mm. It took me a long time to get out of myself. So for me, a big question was, how do I exercise power in the world? How do I exercise agency and not just be passive, which was my natural form of, of, of life? And so I had to learn to come out of myself, to assert myself, to take risks, to do things. That's about using power um, in ways that one would hope would be life-giving, you know. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was moving from passivity to activity. That's when I realized power is important. And that's what led me from an undergraduate student to reflect on power in the Bible. Because it was experientially important for me. Hmm. With that being said... How do you define power? <laughs> <clears throat> I am not a person into definitions. Okay. I'm much more to, t to tell you a story about how power works. Okay. I'll give you examples. But, but if I was to try to give some kind of definition, I would say power is the ability to effect change in the world and in yourself. It is always a gift that God gives us. Power is always something mutual and shared. No one simply has power and others don't. We all have power to different degrees. And for me, more than just defining what it is, is the question of the ethics of power. How should we use power? And for me, the purpose of power is blessing. Mm. The purpose of privilege is service. Every one of us has some degree of power more than some other person or persons in our sphere of influence or has more agency or has more authority. The question is, how do you use it for the enhancement of the others so that we all can together become the people God wants us to be? So the ethics of power is to use power for the benefit of others. Or use a current, current phrase, pay it forward. Pay it forward. Okay, so I, I love hip-hop music and... Um, and particularly when you have a, a great lyricist and they say something that just kind of is mind-blowing, you have to rewind it back mm -hmm. so you can hear it again. You said something to the effect of power is for blessing. Can you repeat those? I said, I said power is for blessing. Um, you know, privilege is for service. Yes, yes, yes. Power is for blessing and privilege is for service. I love that. Um, so where, you know, you're Old Testament scholar, where do you see that in the scriptures of that God gives this gift to humanity? For me, it starts with Genesis chapter one, and God calls human beings to be his image and likeness on earth. Mm. And the image and likeness is associated with dominion. Um, the best way to translate Genesis 1.26 is, let us make human being, create human beings in our image that they may rule, either over or among the animals, and that they may bring the earth into productivity. That's what subduing the earth means. So the human calling is grounded in that text of the image of God in Genesis 1. And God is portrayed in Genesis 1 as a generous creator. Mm who brings the world into being. I mean, let's face it, why did God create the world? 
I mean, God has enough knowledge, whether you believe in traditional doctrines of omniscience, that God knows everything or not. Uh, you got certainly enough knowledge that he knows that human beings are going to really mess up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, you're, you're a father. You know, you bring children into the world. You've seen what children are like. You know they're going to mess up. They're going to cause you pain. But you're going to have to stick with them if you care about them. And it's going to be a difficult journey, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. the best children in the world are going to cause you difficulty. Any long-term relationship will cause you difficulty. So God brings the world into being. didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. So he brings into being another, different from himself, and gives the created beings freedom. And what did they do? Well, they pierced the heart of God, you know. Um, God was grieved in his heart that he had made humanity in Genesis 6. It, yeah. So... The creation itself is an act of love to bring into being another who is going to actually hurt you. But also the way the creation is portrayed, that God let there be, let there be, let there be, let the land produce vegetation. God didn't say, I'm going to produce the vegetation, I'm in charge. No, you produce vegetation. God is a delegator. Let the, the, the firmament separate you know, the, the, the heavens from the, the waters below. Let the the moon and the stars and the, and the sun rule over the day and the night. Well, they rule too, yeah. Let humans rule in this earth. Give them power, give them freedom. And then you get in Genesis chapter 2, God brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called the name, God said, mm, not the best name, but you know what? Keep it. It's yours because you got freedom. <laughs> yeah. so, so God's generous in giving us the power and living with the consequences. Wow. Um, so <laughs> you, you're describing a, a very unselfish God, <laughs> one who shares power and isn't afraid to share power with humanity. And um, it just, it, it makes me think of in some faith traditions, there is this overemphasis of like God has to be the one in charge, like he's in charge, mm-hmm. he's in charge. And sometimes it minimizes human responsibility and human power. People live in accordance with the image of God that they have. And when you have a pastor of a church who has that vision of God, that pastor is a domineering person. Mm. And we all have known people like that. But if you have a vision of God as the self-giving one, then what you do is your whole task is to work yourself out of a job, to empower others so they can do the job, so you can retire, (laughs) (laughs) to pass it on, right? Yeah, yeah. that's good. Now, you quoted Genesis uh, chapter 1 there, and you you talked about how when God said, let us create humanity in our image and likeness and let them have dominion. Um, Now, I've heard dominion used in some ways like, Oh, yeah. I've got the power, dominion. Yeah. How, how do you interpret that word, dominion? So it, it is a word that simply means rule, exercise power. It's a royal metaphor. So it comes from an ancient world when they had kings and monarchies. We don't really have many kings with power anymore. They're titular monarchies, you know. <laughs> so in, in that world, it's taking that metaphor and applying it to human beings. And the reason for that is that in the ancient Near East that Israel was a part of, humans had little dignity and status Mm. vis-a-vis the king, the royal court, and the army and the priesthood who had power. But human beings were the slaves of the gods who 
or channel their service of the deities of their, their nation through the, through the king. So this says, no, y'all are kings, y'all are queens, y'all have the dignity, because of course the king was the one called the image of God in the ancient world. It says, no, let's democratize it. Let's universalize this notion. Male and female, every person made in the image of God has dominion. Now, you come to the modern world when we have two issues that qualify how we understand dominion. The first is we have great technology. So we can blow up the world, right, with nuclear power. We can degrade the environment. I mean, I was just listening on the radio about what happened in the 70s and 80s with dioxin being sprayed upon roads to keep dust down. And then all the horses nearby died. Mm -hmm. Took them 10 years to figure out what was going on, at least to make it public, you know. We can destroy the world with our technology. They didn't have much technology back then. You had a plow, right? <laughs> um, so it, it's, you have to, it's a struggle for farmers to even get something from the ground. So you can use strong words like dominion or subdue the earth, which means bring the earth into productivity. You know, tame the land by farming it, plowing it, sowing seeds, reaping, that kind of stuff, keeping the weeds out. But the other thing that we have in the modern world is we have the nation state. And the nation state has usually a military behind it. And so dominion gets characterized in terms of state power, mm. the kind of state power we have with Lenin or Stalin or Mao Zedong or Putin, you know, yeah. to, to control and destroy others. But dominion can be used a different way. Now, if we are Christians, we follow one we call Lord. Well, the Latin for Lord is Dominus, mm. the one with dominion. And how did Jesus exercise power? Well, he told the disciples, you know, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over the peoples that they rule. It shall not be that way with you. Because hmm. um, you need to serve, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus models the same kind of generosity from, Gen from Genesis 1. So my book on Imago Dei, it's more, my most academic book, which is my dissertation, I ended it by saying, so in both creation and redemption, God loved the world so much that he gave. Hmm. That's the kind of power God exercises. And Jesus not only taught the disciples that, he modeled it. So the Philippian hymn is a great example of that, right? The one who had equality with God did not use that equality as some kind of privilege to be exploited for his own benefit. There's nothing wrong with having privilege. If you have privilege as a pastor of, of a, you know, a college community or a teacher or a president of the United States, whoever you are, you have some privilege, nothing wrong. What do you use the privilege for? You don't use it for yourself only. You've got to get something out of it. You know, Paul loves this metaphor. Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading the grain. Yeah. <laughs> Even the ox need to get some food out of the work they're doing. And you need to get some sustenance out of what you do. But ultimately, he came to give his life, became a servant on behalf of the world and even to death. And that's why God exalted him. Mm. And we, if we are the church and follow Christ, the body of Christ means we embody Christ's mission. If we actually do that, then we will, and this Jesus says it to the disciples, you will sit at my right hand in the kingdom. Mm. But you only get there by going the route that I went. So Paul says, I wanna know the fellowship of his sufferings that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's no resurrection without suffering. There's no exaltation without humiliation. Oh, man. I... <laughs> <laughs>
This is uh, woo, I just need a moment right here. <laughs> oh wow, 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 wow! Good stuff here. Wow, mind blown here. I need some kind of rocket ships, fireworks, sound here. This is good stuff. But you, but you see how the Bible is a unity that coheres. Mm-hmm. It's not some Old Testament God versus New Testament God. This is the framework from creation to eschaton with cross at the center. When there are texts that seem to f- not fit, you read them in terms of that overarching framework. The framework gives you the norms for reading the difficult texts. Oh, that's, that's good. So I, I have a friend um, who at one time was a Christian. I, I think he would describe himself as no longer that. But it all started uh, with him. Uh, he's, he was in the military. And, um, and he started to look at Old Testament texts where there was lots of brutal killing. And he just, you know, he was reading these narratives to his son. And he was like, I, I can't read this stuff to my son. Um, how would you help someone make sense of that? I mean, you could look at the individual texts and, and, and say different things about them. But generally, this is what I have learned from other biblical scholars who take the Bible as life-giving and, and for this world. But they, wanna, they don't want to cover up their eyes and put their head in the ground and say, it's all beautiful. No, it's not. There's a lot of crap in the Bible. Okay, The Bible is an X-rated book, and you don't <laughs> read it to children right away. You know, The kids' Bibles take out and make this stuff so s- superficial. God, so let, let me give you a metaphor. So let's say you have a son, and you, you love that child, and the child grows up, and he becomes a drug addict. And what do you do? Do you say, I got nothing more to do with you. You're out of my life. God could have said that. He didn't. He kept working with the world for redemption. So he's like the, the, the father that says, you know, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to give you some tough love, but I'm not giving up on you. And I'm going to be connected to you. And anytime you need me, talk to me. Now, that father may get associated in the eyes of people looking with a drug culture. He may actually go to where his son is hanging out with, 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 with the, the addicts. You know, and look, he's got himself tainted. Hmm. His father is going to situations that he shouldn't be in. He should separate himself the way the Pharisees want to separate. But Jesus hung out with the sinners, and so he got a bad reputation, right? Hmm. God has rolled up his sleeves, got involved in the fray of human history to bring redemption, and it ain't easy. Because nations, even in ancient times, also have power and militaries and so on. And he works with them to nudge them back to where he wants and ultimately brings his Messiah through them. But in the process, he has to work with people who are fallen, and he has to bring revelation to their context. So of course he's going to be tainted by all that. That's that's a perspective that I would use to say this just shows a God who has not given up on human beings, but it doesn't always look good for him. Hmm. But it's not his goal. His goal is redemption, and it's responsive to the human violence that's already there. Hmm. And do you see that in a sense of I don't know if this is theologically correct to say it this way, but God respecting the, the human authority and human power that he's given to them? Yeah, yeah. So, so the, you know, I teach on the book of Samuel, and the people ask for a king like the nations. They haven't had a king for two to 300 years, depending when you date the Exodus, right? They never had a king. And Samuel doesn't want to have a king because he's the leader of Israel. He's the judge. But God says, you know what? 
listen to their voice and give them a king. Hmm. So it's like like you got a son grows up, or it could be a daughter, you know, and you know. The kid says, you know, I got my license now. Can I get the keys to the car? And God said, no, that's a bad idea. You can't have it. No monarchy. And God said, all right, okay, let's see. If I don't give this kid the keys to the car, they're going to rebel against me and just go their own way. So here you go. Mm. But some rules. Don't drive when you're drunk. Mm. For the first year, I don't want you driving with any friends in your front seat. Or don't drive at night. I want you to get practice with it. So there are limits to the monarchy in Deuteronomy 17. The king should not get an army. The king should not have a harem. The king should not have great wealth. What kind of monarchy is that, right? So now the limits. So I'm going to put some limits, but I'm going to let you go because I respect your freedom that much. But I'm going to work with your freedom. And then they, they mess it up. And he works with that again. And they mess it up. And they work with that again. And even after Jesus, we got the church, and we keep messing it up, God keeps working with us again. Wow, wow, wow. I need that button again for fireworks here. Uh, so much that you said. Um, I, I want to ask you about this because something is what you said I'm just reflecting on. Um, when you talked about the Imago Dei, the image of God, us being image bearers is a royal metaphor it makes me think about um, the children of Israel, the Hebrews, are in Egypt, enslaved. And is it correct to say that this story in Genesis is given as a way to possibly deprogram them or reprogram them into what the human calling is? I think it's meant to reprogram any reader of the text. Mm -hmm. And we don't know when the Genesis 1 text was written at yeah. what time period. But after, certainly, bondage in Egypt would have denatured Israel, you know, mm -hmm. affected them negatively. Um, and so after they come out of exile, out of the bondage, they come to Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of Genesis. And God says, look, see how I brought you on eagle's wings here and brought you to myself. Though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But you've got to keep this covenant. And the covenant is not just a pledge between them. It's got some laws, Torah, statutes, mm. observances, meant to put limits on their behavior to reform them. Because they've gone through deformation. They need reformation to become a people who can live as free. Because they've been messed up real bad. Yeah, yeah. And so them asking for a king is, is going in the wrong direction. Right, yeah. I mean, it, it goes back earlier. So the first, you know, it only took 11 days, I think it was, if I remember rightly, for them to get to the promised land. Not 40 years, you know. <laughs> and they reach Kadesh Barnea, and they send spies in. They come, oh, there's giants in the land. We can't go in. The people doubt, and God says, all right, none of you guys are going to enter this land. <laughs> Your descendants will. Every one of you are just going to, we're going to hang around in the wilderness wandering. <laughs> mm. They don't want it very far. It's the same area, 40 years. So the next generation, because we've got to get a fresh start. These people are not ready. They've not been reshaped by this. So the next generation comes into the land, and what do they do? Well, after a few generations, they want a king, right? Mm. So every generation messes up in some way. None of us is exempt Never try and contrast Israel with the church. That is just BS. <laughs> we are just like 
the ancient Israelites. Yes. You know, and we, we, we are human beings. The garden story, Genesis 2 and 3, the man and the woman and the temptation and the sin and the corruption of relationships and corruption of the earth, that is not just about what happened in the beginning. That is an archetype. That's what we go through, every single one of us. We have listened to um, the temptation to say, grasp it for yourself. Don't trust God that he'll give it to you in a good time. And then immediately we have this, we have both fear of God and shame and they are alienated from each other. And the man at that point names the woman as he had named the animals because he named them and couldn't find a suitable companion. Suddenly she's no longer a companion. She is treated like an animal. So all relationships get messed up. That's us. We do that in every generation, in every human life. Wow, wow. All right, folks, we gotta, we gotta shut it down. We're not finished, but we're just stopping. Um, we're gonna have to have you back. Thank you so much. If uh, people wanted to read some of your books or find you, how, how could they do that? So I do have a website just called jrichardmiddleton.com. And if you go to the menu, you'll find a menu called books. Got a list of all my books with links. You got another menu called articles. Almost all my articles, you can find PDFs there and download them if you want to read any of them. And there's some other. I've been blogging there, but not been blogging very regularly of late, so you're not going to find much recently. But you can find old blog old blog posts. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to BT's Neighborhood. Listen, if you are um, being inspired and these podcasts are a blessing to you, why don't you share them? Uh, send us a note letting us know that you find these beneficial to your life. And, um, and we'll see you on the next episode of BT's Neighborhood. Thanks again for listening to this episode of BT's Neighborhood, where we aim for simple but deep conversations about being a good neighbor here and now at Roberts Wesleyan and wherever our paths take us in the future.